The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is April 22nd, 2020, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Boris Johnson is laying low. I haven't actually looked up the news about Boris Johnson today, so I got no Boris Johnson update. We don't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun. And it's Wednesday, so Kate's, you know, teaching... Uh, right up until showtime, she'll join us as soon as she's done with her class. Hi! See? She had more fun with her class than Boris Johnson had today. In lieu of fun, we have Randy Barnett of the Georgetown Law School. George, uh, Randy Barnett, you know, a lot of you guys probably read him on the Vola conspiracy. Uh, he's a, uh, a famous libertarian uh, uh, legal scholar and... Uh, I think he may be a neighbor of mine, but I'm not sure about that. Um, but we are here to talk to him about whether it's possible really to be a libertarian in a pandemic. Somebody said to, well, I forget who said recently, there's no such thing as a libertarian in a pandemic. And we're going to explore with Randy whether that's true, because it's pugilism week. So we're going to try to land a few blows on him. He hits back hard. So, Randy, welcome to In Lieu of Fun. Uh, oh, it's good to be here. It's yes. good to be here. Cheers. Uh, what, what are you drinking? That's a, I just I wanted to, say, to explain that to you. I am drinking a sweet vermouth, um, Antica Formula, uh, by Giuseppe Carpano. This Ooh. is the label here. That looks. Now, good. I'm drinking this in honor of my father, because my father's favorite drink was sweet vermouth on the rocks. So I, it's a safe drink you can order anywhere, any bar, any, any social gathering. They always have it as a mixer. They have Martini and Rossi, which I really like a lot. But when I went to the ABC liquor store, which is the Virginia Monopoly liquor store uh, during this thing, um, and I needed to get some drink for myself, um, I said, what do you got besides Martini and Rossi? You got anything more interesting? And they gave me this. And I've actually had this before in restaurants. And it's good. Uh, uh, sweet Vermouth is very sweet. And Martini and Rossi tastes a lot like, you know, Manischewitz or Mogan David kind of it's in, in, in its sweetness. This has an edge to it. This is, has like a bite at the end. And I'm not sure I like it better, but it's expensive. And I'm going to drink this all down <laughs> before, uh, before I, I switch to the cheap Martini. I got to say, you lost me at the word Manischewitz. Wait, do you I mean, why? That's, you the best or... part, that's the best part of Passover. What are you talking about? I mean, Manischewitz is just a horrible thing. And, and you know the wow this not, is really going down well today i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan all right of this. and you can you're not allowed to like you cannot turn in lieu of fun entirely into a show that is basically like you're running commentary on all things goyish and jewish like no, no, about, that, that's like, not a commentary on i mean it's, <laughs> manischewitz is manischewitz he brought it up i so actually ben, kate uh What's the story with your, your, your scarf? It's pretty excellent. It was a present today. It came in the mail completely as a surprise from a friend that excellent. like two friends got together and gave this me the scarf because I had a bad day last week and they sent me this to cheer me up. It was beautiful. It's, from, it it's from Ireland. It it's cashmere. It's gorgeous. Did it work? It is, yes. Are you up? And I needed it because I w just gotten back from the emergency room. <laughs> yeah. So, Kate, before we, so it's pugilism <laughs> week, so we got to talk injuries. Uh, Kate, you had a run in with a knife. Well, I had a run in with a knife. Oh, well, yes. I guess the sadder way of saying it is that I had a run in with a dog treat bag that I lost to very, but I couldn't get this dog treat bag open at like 11.30 last night. And I just grabbed like a steak knife that was on the thing and I just, went like this and just like, just, it just like worked a yeah, little too don't well. Don't go like this. Yeah. yeah, I know. I wasn't thinking, I was just kind of, you know, trying to do some last minute things before going to bed. And then um, we like bandaged it up and we're like, oh, it'll be fine. Maybe we need to go to the ER tomorrow. And then we woke up this morning, you're like, yeah, that's definitely has to happen. So four stitches later, 
Um, it's fine. Yeah, during the pandemic, nobody, uh, nobody may be allowed to use sharp implements. I think yeah. this is a reasonable regulation of liberty. I mean, in addition to being shot, shut at home, you also ought to have a personal ban on any shop ob objects, because if anything were to go wrong with that sharp object, you then have to go to the emergency room and put a stress on the healthcare system, which is going to detract I from think he's joking, Ben. Is he so, joking? So Randy is being sarcastic, but it sounds entirely <laughs> reasonable to me. So let's get into that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, so, come at me, bro. I, <laughs> I want to know, like, um, you know, Tom Lehrer had that great line about the Vietnam War era. You begin to feel like an, uh, a Christian scientist with appendicitis. Um, and I wonder, is a, is a libertarian in a pandemic uh, environment going through a crisis of faith in any sense? Or do you think there are freedom-loving, market-oriented ways of addressing a pandemic crisis? Yeah, you'll be relieved to know that unlike everyone else, all my priors are being confirmed uh, by this. <laughs> No one else's. No one else's priors are being confirmed. Everybody's right. changing. Oh, their I mind. thought you meant the show for a second, but you mean the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, like, all my no, yeah. yeah, no, no. I get it. I get no. All my priors are being confirmed by the pandemic, just like everybody else's priors are. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm. I. I don't feel like my priors are being confirmed. But then again, I don't really know what they were anyway. But I. I'm really interested in like what would libertarian policy if you were the governor of Virginia or the president of the United States, what are the authorities that you would and wouldn't activate? What are the things that look like the current response and what are the things that don't? Well, I mean, just to begin with, because I, I am not a healthcare specialist and therefore I don't necessarily have answers to any of these questions, but um, uh, in terms of whether there's ever a libertarian a pandemic, one of the first things that became necessary to do during this pandemic was start cutting all the bureaucratic red tape that surrounded, for example, the development of testing or the development of vaccines or the development of um, uh, or the building of respirators. I mean, uh, the reason why none of this stuff could happen right away is because the CDC and the FDA had all of these pre-existing procedures in place that slow everything down to a crawl. And nothing could happen uh, until those procedures got overridden. And uh, you know, I, I thought it was funny um, when the president was being accused on Twitter uh, for failing to use his authoritarian powers uh, to override. When, when anybody would say, "Hey, look, you know, it's the CDC and the FDA's procedures that are stopping all this stuff from happening," and then the comeback was, "Yeah, but the president should override all that and it should make and, and should cut all that stuff." When, and some of that actually did get overridden. So anyway, my point is, is that um, uh, I, I hardly think there's any regulation within the healthcare uh, provider business that isn't going to have to be rethought in light of this pandemic. So this is, I wanna push back on that because I live with a libertarian and I'm not talking about my dog. And so we have these fights a lot and going into the pandemic, all he kept saying was like, you know why we don't have tests? Onerous government regulation. And I was like, yes, okay, that's your answer to everything. <laughs> but then some interesting things started to happen, right? Was that like there became, because uh, maybe uh, libertarians are almost too right about things sometimes, there became a glut of fake tests that were available on all of these sites and there was price gouging and there were all of these very, all of these kind of economic harms that were like obviously, uh, I mean, maybe your argument would be that it wasn't a perfect market. It was like the uh, like the existence of the government regulation in the first place, hamstrung that, like hamstrung the ability for the market to correct. But that doesn't answer the fact that you need some type of verification of the of the quality of the tests, right? Well, I, I mean, the the, the so-called paradox is easily resolved. I, I should have gone to that first, but I couldn't resist the other. Um, and that is that libertarians are not against the reasonable regulation of liberty. Um, there's nothing about being a libertarian that means you have to be against that. And there's nothing about my constitutional view of the original meaning of the Constitution that makes me be against that. There is a police power under the Constitution. There is a theory of the police power, which was the original theory of the police power, that had to do with protecting the background natural rights of each and every person. 
Um, some of which is done after the fact by means of punishing criminals. Some of it's done in advance by regulating liberty so as to prevent rights violations from happening uh, uh, afterwards in ways that you don't want to have happen. So the idea you can have preventative regulations is simply not inconsistent with libertarianism. Um, there are, of course, libertarians are uh, a bit more skeptical about some regimes of regulations as opposed to other regimes of regulations. So it's not that regulations are off the, off the board. It's how you're going to regulate and who's going to regulate. Um, uh, like and, how would Pagovian taxes, for example, like answer this right now? Like, I just don't see how like in the, in the, in the moment of the, the crisis and like the fact that it's a crisis, some of these longer term kind of solutions that like typically libertarians favor don't seem to be as effective. Well, look, that's part of, part of this is a problem of emergencies and crises. Um, uh, let's just go back. I mean, I have a book called the structure of liberty, justice, and the rule of law. And that's in which I lay out my theory of rights and my theory of the rule of law. And I argue that these particular sets of rights are necessary to solve three major categories of social problems that would have to be solved somehow. Problems of interest, problems of knowledge, problems of interest, and problems of power. I don't want to go through the whole spiel now, but these are all the rights necessary to solve those problems. The rights that are necessary to solve those problems assume a certain state of the world. This is the reason why they're called natural rights. Natural rights assume a certain state of the world that, that is natural and that it, and you generalize from the particulars of all our lives and you, and you reach some general conclusions. And one of those conclusions is this is a general category of rights you need and the rule of law you need as well. All right. But what happens when the general conditions on which those rights are based are somehow thrown out the window for some reason? Where, where do we see this hypothetically in philosophy? We see this, uh, for example, in uh, shipwreck cases. So uh, you got, you're in, you're, this is the hypothetical in which you're in the water and you, uh, two people are, are, are swimming towards a, a, a floating piece of debris that can only support one of them. Um, who gets that piece of debris in an emergency situation like that? Or you have this, you give the stranded hiker uh, in the middle of in the middle of a snowstorm. To, can they break into a home given the emergency situation? This the is that straight up like re I mean that's like rescue doctrine in, in torts, and that's I mean one on the one hand, and then that's also like actually frankly like it's a bunch of like I teach property, so that's like a property. Those are property questions, yes, which of yes. course you want them to be property questions because you're a libertarian. Right, but, but there's but, like <laughs> right, but the idea here is is that. Um, it isn't it, it, when the rule book, when the when the when the state of the world on which your rights theory is based is somehow upended and those conditions no longer apply, then the then the rules that are necessary to solve those conditions may also no longer apply. You may be in a new situation that that necessitates different types of conduct, like, for example, there, the, the, who gets to get to get to ride on the piece of debris that's floating in the water may not depend on who previously owned it. That ocean, this notion of that the previous ownership is going to dictate that is something that would apply in the normal world. Not to be a jerk, but like, what about the idea of numerous clauses? What about the idea of like trying to kind of like constrain the the solution to these problems to a certain number of forms, like in terms of like having some type of having some type of limitation to, to, to the ways that we create solutions to the problems. You don't think that that holds here? The general point I'm trying to make is that under emergency unusual circumstances, the normal rules that are necessary, absolutely necessary to solve normal circumstances may not apply. But, that does, but we should not draw from that. That's not a reductio ad absurdum of the normal principles governing the normal situation. That is, you don't say, oh, well, we've now refuted all your normal principles. Because under this emergency situation, they don't work very well. Okay, That's the so, point I'm trying to make. So you're not being Carl, right? So you're, 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 you're distinguishing the emergency situation from a general Schmidtian observation that the emergency situation negates traditional liberalism. But right. I'm, but I'm also, trying to- Also, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I think what, what, a lot of, what a lot of people instinctively want to say is that the entire world is like a one continuous emergency situation. And so we need to have authorities of the kind that would govern emergency situation govern all situations. And this is what liberalism um, is opposed to, because we don't think all situations are like emergency situations. That's actually, right. I but, think but, I like but, that actually. No, I think that's I a really too. good way. So far we're in, I think we're in total agreement. That's just because you're a liberal. 
Well, I am a oh. liberal. <laughs> but, I'm not. But, I'm not. But, I just said Ben is the liberal. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a liberal. Well, we're going to figure out where. I don't know what I am. Do we want to make the game today of figuring out whether I'm a libertarian or not? That's a fun game that people like to play all the time on the internet. <laughs> but, I, but I still want to identify. So, so far, um, I I think I'm in more or less complete agreement with you. Although I would derive the point differently. Um, uh, so my question is, are you comfortable with what Gretchen Whitmer did and what Gavin Newsom has done? Or um, do you say, well, even in the emergency situation, uh, legitimate powers of uh, the police power doesn't extend that far or that there are you know, limits on it that would have precluded some of the steps that these governors have taken uh, or is there some natural endpoint to it beyond a kind of collective understanding informed by expertise that the emergency has passed? There's, I mean, these are great questions and, and there's different ways I could try to answer them. I'm trying to figure out the best way to enter this. I would, I would say um, that the police power uh, is a general power, but it is not an unlimited power. A police power is a power of the state to provide for the health, welfare, health, health uh, and welfare uh, of the community. Uh, it stems indirectly, or eventually it can be traced back to natural rights, but that's a long story. We don't need to go there. But it's basically um, health, and wel health and welfare um, um, uh, our regulations are, are okay. Um, the question is one of necessity, though. The, there has to be some relationship between the means adopted and the end. There's got to be what we would say in constitutional law, a means ends fit. Now, there's two questions that, are, that, that is, you know, what are the means? What are the ends? How much of a fit there has to be? And who gets to decide whether there is a means ends fit or not? But those are two separable questions. And so, first of all, I assert there needs to be a means ends fit. So, any given policy by any given person who has been delegated authority by their legislature to handle emergencies. And of course, there's a separation of powers question also with respect to these governors, just like there is with the president. Have they actually been given the authority by their legislature to engage in these emergencies situations? I think some governors scope of authority are different than other governors. And I don't know what all the different state constitutions, but state constitutions are relevant here. Let's get let's put separation of powers to one side. Let's assume a certain amount of this discretionary power in the case of emergency has been delegated to the governor. There still needs to be a connection between the means that governor adopts and the ends. Um, I would say that, and this gets back to the emergency situation, the situation I found myself in trying to evaluate when reporters keep calling me, is this constitutional, is that constitutional? And I'm refusing to answer. Why? Because I don't really know the facts on the ground. I don't really know. I don't, I, I myself did not know what the scope of this disease was. I didn't know what its contagiousness was. I didn't know what the danger of contracting it is. I didn't know who among us are the ones that are most at risk and not most. I didn't know any of these things. Uh, I mean, also, I don't think these governors knew either. So I think that in the short term, in the immediate term, when confronting an emergency, assuming this is one, and I'll assume for the sake of argument that it is, um, People have to act. They take the best measures they can under the limited information they get. But as new information comes in, they are constitutionally obligated to substantiate what they're doing in light of new information. Another way of putting this is other people can challenge them on the grounds that the ends that they adopted really are arbitrary or irrational with respect to the, uh, the, sorry, the means they've adopted really are arbitrary or irrational with respect to the end they purport to be following. So if, for example, you can go to, Cost you can go to Costco or you can go to uh, uh, Home Depot and you can shop for certain things, but they're, you're going to put. You're not going to be able to shop for seeds to plant your vegetable garden. I'm going to raise a question about that. I'm going to say, well, what's up with that? I mean, tell you, you tell you. First of all, the burden is on the government, you, the governor, to give us an explanation. I think that burden can be satisfied in most cases, and that's fine. Tell me why is there a, a rope that that says that people who go to Home Depot can buy this, this, and this? But it's unsafe for them to buy this other thing that's sitting over here. What's up with that? Now, I, I can imagine I can make up a story. Oh, well, if more people if you can buy more things, more people will hit the road. And if more people hit the road, then we got a problem. I could I can. It's not like I can't imagine a story, but I shouldn't have to imagine a story. 
the governor should tell us the story. And then we should all be able to evaluate whether that story makes sense. That's what A, I think an appropriate uh, approach to the Constitution requires, and B, that's not that approach is not inconsistent with libertarianism. And so when you see these protests, which are, they're not sort of expressly gatherings of libertarian, but libertarians, but they're expressing libertarian don't tread on me themes, right? Um, do you react to them with sympathy um, within the framework that you just described that these are people who were challenging governors to uh, uh, integrate new information and see whether the measures continue to be justified? Or do you react to them kind of the way I react to them? My God, you know, 40,000 people are dying and, and you're out there protesting social distancing. Um, what's your instinctive reaction when you see images of these protesters? Um, my, my, well, I, I, I think my instinctive reaction is to be somewhat more sympathetic than yours has been, to be honest. But um, I, I try to resist my instincts and try to evaluate these things as detached as I can. And my view is that these protests are a result of a kind of a natural result of what is perceived to be arbitrary rule on the part of their particular governments. That is, it's a lack of faith in the people in authority that they're actually doing what they're doing in good faith. A, in good faith, or B, on the basis of knowledge and not on the basis of some sort of irrational fear or prejudice. I think if the government made a better argument and had made a better argument from the beginning. I don't know whichever we're talking about in Michigan or wherever, because I don't live there. I don't really know what's being said in the news media there. But if the government had made a better argument in the beginning for why this was necessary and why that was necessary and give it an explanation, I think you're much less likely to get the kind of pushback that you're getting. That's number one. Number two, you know from being on social media as well as I do that we've now divided up into two camps. We've divided up into the, we need to get, we, need, we can't go on forever like this. We need to get, open up the economy. We can't go on forever like this. At some point we need to open up. And so we need to talk about what it's necessary to open up sooner rather than later, hopefully. That's one camp. The other camp is everybody who says everyone in the first camp wants people to die and doesn't care about anything. We need to lock down indefinitely they don't actually say we have to lock down indefinitely so, so which are you are you are I, you i think we cannot possibly you, uh, are you in the destroy the economy or destroy human life camp i think that's a false choice as, as the as the previous president loved to say um uh i don't think that's the situation at all i think that we we have it i think the idea of lock of of lock, ending all human interaction um and putting us all under house arrest which is where I am right now, as well as you and other people, um, indefinitely is just not practical. It just can't work. It's going to create way, way more problems. Now, I, I don't think that if pushed, anyone will say, this is what they favor. You're going to have to end the lockdown eventually. Everybody will say, well, eventually you have to. Okay, when there's a vaccine. Uh, even then, by the way, a vaccine isn't a perfect defense against all of this stuff either. But let me just say, the issue is, is one of timing. It's not whether you need to do this. It's one of timing. And whenever you decide that it's right for you to end the lockdown, you're going to have to have appropriate intervening steps to implement the ending of it. You don't just everybody rush out and do what they were doing before. Social distancing, you mentioned. There's a lot of people who are opposed to this lockdown who are not opposed to social distancing. They're not opposed to staying six feet away from the people they're in line at the grocery store with. They're not opposed to even wearing masks if the situation calls for it. That's not the same thing as a lockdown. That's not the same thing as a stay at home order. We've got to have some sense of perspective and scale as to what we are actually, the policies, we're, the policies that those people are protesting and what they're not protesting. I think it's the lockdown, stay at home, drive the economy into the ground position that they're protesting. And I think if it's anything less than that, and that anything less than that had been explained to them in good faith, they would be more sympathetic. But I do think they're witnessing our, what they perceive to be, and I think possibly justifiably so, arbitrary rulings. People do not, re your students do not respond well 
to what they perceive to be arbitrary rulings. But I mean, to, to your point, the, the, there's, I think that there another way of putting the two groups that you've like kind of, that you've kind of created and that are appearing on social media to your ends means distinction is the people who see the crushed economy as the end and people who see the crushed economy as the means on the way to saving humanity. And so I actually think that those are two different, like those are two different ends and means and they're talking past each other as they so often do. Well, there is a disagreement on the facts. There is a different sense of the facts. I agree with this as to whether we're talking about an end of human existence, saving humanity situation or we're not. So people are entitled to disagree with uh, disagree with each other about that fact. Not on social media, they're not. They're not entitled to disagree with you. Uh, on social media, you're going to get mobbed uh, if you if you express one of those opinions over the other. But we're entitled to disagree about whether this is a genuine threat to humanity. If it was, if it was going back to where we started with emergency situations where you throw the rules out, the rule book out because now we're in a different situation. If it was an and if it was an existential crisis that uh, involving the future fate of humanity, then all the rules that work perfectly well, well enough before that situation happened, though it might have to be rethought. I don't think that's where we are. But okay, so one of the things, so I teach internet law. I'm teaching it this semester alongside property, which is a fascinating time to be doing this because it is, I think, making property all the more relevant um, every single day and having property or not having property and everything else that's going on. But one of the things that I think is very interesting kind of coming out of this, and I just like left my internet law class, so this is top of mind, um, is this idea that like, I actually think that the pandemic in constricting our actual physical liberty to go places has changed something in the information economy that has not been changed for a long time, which is to say that basically um, now there, it is the end of, inter- I've said this a few times in the podcast, like there, it is the end of internet exceptionalism. It is the end of the idea that this is not real. Like people would often say, this is a cyber interaction that you're having. Well, now it's like a real, like now it's, it's real. It's like a very, I don't know if you want to say Goffman, I don't know what you want to like call it, but there is this distinction between the performance and the reality and the performance being the reality. And I'm, I don't want to get overly philosophical for everyone that's listening and into the weeds, but like, basically I really, I kind of want to hear what you, like, I think that this is this fabulous moment that the constriction of physical liberty is changing our conception, our basic conceptions of property, changing our conceptions of, of, of speech and changing kind of the constraints that we've thought about speech, changing how we think of government versus private power, uh, and changing, um, and changing kind of the, um, the privacy concerns that we have, like we are, have no privacy with the people that we're quarantined with and, little privacy with our colleagues, like you're in my kitchen right now. Um, and that's a big change um, for a, in a lot of ways. I'm just curious what you think about that. Uh, right now, actually, while I'm listening to you, I'm trying to find your tweets so I can get some of my followers to fo- to come and join here and I can oh, retweet great. this retweet this to everybody. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I don't know if they will, but it's like we're half hour in. I just realized I didn't do anything like that. All right, let me get back to this video here. Um, Look, I don't. I, if I thought it, this was a throw out the rule book because we now live in a new physical environment in which the natural order has changed and therefore the rights that we need in order to survive and and flourish in a natural order have have to adjust as well, then I we would have that conversation. I mean, there, there's no reason why that there's no reason why that can't happen in principle. But I'm but saying we're having that conversation. Let's 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 put brass tacks on that. So right now, one-tenth of one percent of New York City has died of COVID-19. Um, loose estimate. Um, uh, you know, it's about 20,000 20, people are dead, 25,000 people in New York. Um, and we've got, um, you know, city of 10 million people or something. Um, so what what's the percentage at which you say, okay, that's a big enough risk existentially that, I mean, obviously it's presumably some kind of a sliding scale, right? But I look at those kind of numbers and I say, I don't really need to get to 2% before I'm 
before you shut down the subways? Right. Um, shut down the subways. They don't have subways everywhere. They have them in New York. Uh, look, I, but my point is I don't need to get to 2% before I say, uh, you know, gross emergency measures are justified um, before we're in that state. And my question is, uh, obviously, it's different depending on where you are. It's different. That's in, my point. That's in, my in point. Hawaii than my, it my, is in- my point is the facts of human life and human nature haven't necessarily changed. For, I, I don't think they've changed necessarily even anywhere. They may have changed temporarily in New York, but if they've changed anywhere, they've changed in very certain locations because of, and we have to be careful. We have to be serious, serious, not internet serious, but serious, serious about um, what is the nature of those locations that make them different than other locations. But to be fair, Randy, like there was a period in time, like this is a true testament to like people from New York fled and they fled with their disease and they were contagious and they went to all of these different places. And I- Like am, you. I am, like me. <laughs> Six weeks ago, I bugged out to Cape Cod. We've all been over that. Like I bugged out to Cape, and I stayed in my house and have like barely, have not left my house for six weeks, basically. Like, and it's not my house, it's my parents' house. The house that I, like, whatever. And, but the point of this is there's a ton of people down the road when I first got here six weeks ago that were from Boston, that were from New York, that were from Providence, that were all here. And they're like, they felt like they'd left the contagion. They felt like they'd left the situation. And if they, if like the Massachusetts and Rhode Island and New York governors had not instituted this global kind of lockdown, people would have just left the areas where they didn't, I mean, this is a true vote by your feet type of thing. They would left the areas where they didn't like the quarantine and gone with those with privilege would have gone to areas where they wanted to. And so I think- This is a different question. Everything gets, we can't deal with every single question all at the same time. It collapses all questions into, into one question. What happens when people flee? My point I was making is that the situation that bred a higher level of contagion and disease in one location, New York City, doesn't necessarily obtain in the rest of the country. But the rest of the, but the country, but like what I'm trying to say is like New I York know, City doesn't stay in New York City. I, I, I heard, I, I totally understood what you were saying. I, I just want to restate what I was saying that I'll okay. add. So the, the, in order to do, so I question the proposition that all of human existence has now changed its basic nature so that we must now throw out the rule book as to how life should normally be conducted. And we now all have to conduct it in a new way as though we're gonna be under a permanent state of emergency. Um, so that's the quote I'm questioning. Now, there is the possibility that people from a more dangerous area can flee into people at places where there is at that time less danger and then that's gonna create danger for the people. That's a different issue. It's a different, look, I am like you, I fled Washington, D.C. I pulled my parents, my mom and my father-in-law out of their retirement apartment building in Maryland, in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which, th- which a week before they went into a lockdown, uh, brought them to my house in Central Virginia, my lake house in Central Virginia. And then after I knew I was free of the disease, after a week-long self-quarantine in D.C., I came down here. And for the last three weeks, my wife and I have been caring for them here. But one of the things that happens when we got here is that we are self-quarantining from other people in Central Virginia and other people in Central Virginia are self-quarantining from us. So we just came back from our walk and on our walk, everybody is very careful in this community to stay on their side of the road um, and not get within a certain number of feet of each other in this. So we can manage, This it's much, e- here's the point, I think gets back to my original point. It's much easier for us to manage this quarantine and manage this, this health of, uh, situation here where we have more space than it would be in my row house in DC. But my I, point, my so point is the, like in an, in a in a law in a regulation feeding social norms situation. I do think that like the the one size fits all solution for the country helped people get there and realize that there was this serious thing in which people now have adopted it and voluntarily taken it up. So if we were to lift the regulation, there would be some type of self regulation. No, sorry. I mean, maybe you don't agree not, with that. I, I, I may not. I, I don't know if I disagree. I don't know if I agree or disagree with it. Frankly, I'd have to think about that. Um, I all the stuff that, that originally happened didn't happen as a result of a top-down edict. All the stuff that originally happened happened as a result of people individually, like myself and my wife, and like you, 
listening to what we were listening to and taking the best steps we could in the basis of what our options were, uh, given what we we're listening to. Nobody ordered me to move my parents out of Chevy Chase to Central Virginia, and and nobody. But luckily, nobody prevented me from doing it either. That that's and also kind of good. I think this is all anecdotal. Like I think this is just us, and we are kind of elites, and we have this not access. Like we have a pretty good head on our shoulders, and we have some some resources and we can make these types of decisions. I don't, I think a lot of people didn't take it seriously. Um, anyway, we can, well, we have, we have a really good question from Christopher. Sure. Christopher, yeah, you gotta can, unmute yourself. Yeah, hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Hi, uh, I'm calling in from Germany. So let's uh, follow up on the regional question that you just approached. I would like to know if you have, one region that you're looking at in the question of uh, shutting up or shutting down or opening up the stores, for example, and you have two health officials deferring on the point of view how to do it. How do you weigh the arguments as an official? I would like to know that. That's well, a there's, an, there's an epistemic problem that we alluded to earlier, and some of the other questionings that I see in the Q&A are alluding to. What do you do in the face of bad information or no information, and how do yes. you know? So I think at that point, we step back. I, don't, I, don't, I did not have all the answers then. I don't have all the answers now. Um, these decisions are made by some people. I, I, I think based on the best advice that they're getting at the time, um, I do think that the one size fits all top down one rule for 360 million people approach is as likely to lead to bad outcomes as good outcomes, as disastrous outcomes as better outcomes. Um, I, th I still prefer the 50 state solution approach that takes more into effect the different circumstances of different localities because that was the only point I was trying to make earlier. Not all circumstances are the same. I mean, somebody said yesterday on Twitter, that you know, if uh, Montana was suffering, this was I was thinking about this when Ben was asking me his hypothetical. If Montana was sub was 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 suffering from a fifty percent fatality rate, would New York City shut down? That's an interesting question. We actually had on a guest from rural Western Montana earlier. It's amazing. Uh, and you know, his point was, you know being under a social distancing order out here is no different from not being under a social distancing order. You know, I, I, I don't see my neighbors on a day-to-day -day basis was basically his, his point of view. And, and so I think there's, you know, there's something, there's something but, to that, that. But there's, there's an instinct on, there's an instinct online and amongst the, amongst the elites, some elites, um, that, well, wait a second, we can't have differential solutions for differential circumstances. We have to make everybody pay the same price, everybody follow the same rules, because otherwise, A, it's not fair, or B, you can get into indirect consequences of the kind that Kate was talking about, which, well, if everybody doesn't do this, then there's going to be this problem down the road. I don't think, it, I, 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 in terms of where a libertarian necessarily has to be in a pandemic, I think a libertarian can afford to be um, realistic about the differential circumstances that different people are facing under different social circumstances. And they're not obligated to have a one size fits all solution for 360 million people that live in really, really different situations. And one last thing I thought about, say about the elitism point that Kate made earlier, you know, the people that we came to join in central Virginia um, and, and social distance ourselves from, they're not the elites necessarily. Some of them might be, but most of them are not. So, you know, we're hanging out, we're living with the non-elites. Um, and, you know, and it's the elites are back in DC and, 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 and New York. Yeah, there's a mix here. I would say that there's like all of the locals are completely overwhelmed by the, by the onslaught of people. And, um, also an understanding that the season, like they're a very practical understanding of like the fact that their season is dead, like pretty much no one is going to be here this summer and that like they have to get their money while they can. And so they're trying to stay open and work really, you know, work and try to like kind of staff up, um, and protect themselves. So that's kind of interesting. Well, I, I, I will say, say I, I want to say one more thing about that where I fled to is not where the hoi polloi flees to. Right. I mean, I, my second home is not where the hoi polloi have their second homes. So I understand there's kind of a different cultural significance to the people that are fleeing to Cape Cod or wherever they're fleeing to uh, or Long Island 
um, or wherever they're fleeing to, wherever they got their summer homes, I don't have a summer home there. I have a summer home in a completely different socioeconomic place. Yeah, so where, where are you? I'm between Fredericksburg and Culpeper at a place called Lake of the Woods, which is a uh, mm -hmm. private uh, man-made lake of about 550 acres. It's a beautiful place. Um, and uh, it is a very socio, it's a very mix of sociological, socio background and people here. Um, I would say I prefer, prefer the Cape Cod that I'm at, uh, not when the Hoi Poi are here. <laughs> I t come here typically like in the, yeah, anyways. And, but I wanted to make a really quick point, which is, what do you, I think that this is going to be a tremendous moment for federalism in the end. Um, that is my prediction. I think that actually a one size fits all for six weeks plus the, then like a ramp up to states making their own choices is probably the best possible outcome. Um, and I mean, well, it's the only, well, I hope it's the best possible outcome because I really think that it can't keep going on like this. Um, but I, I'm curious if you agree, like, what do you think that, what do you think the, what do you think this is going to say about federalism for the long haul? I'm pretty cynical about fair weather federalism by conservatives and libertarian uh, and conservatives and progressives. Um, so, um, I mean, I have to say I'm more cynical by progressives than I am conservatives, but nevertheless, there's an element of fair weather federalism for everybody. Um, and I can be, I can hope that this is true, but look, the same people, you know, who, want strong national power and they like love they love delegation of massive amounts of power to the president uh, when it's their president they don't like it so much when it's this president uh, and yet I don't see people willing to reconsider the non-delegation doctrine to deny because you know okay here you go here's your here's your reduct here's your uh, the downside of your policies is you if you if you delegate all of these emergency discretionary powers to the president the president may not be who you want you may be a president you hate and so the lesson that ought to be taken from that is not like the lesson from federalism, the lesson, well, don't delegate all this power to the president. You know, I haven't seen a big movement towards that amongst my colleagues. Amongst maybe, my maybe we can start it. <laughs> like, I think that there's, <laughs> I think that there's, oh my God, I actually like, and I, I don't know, as I said before, I honestly don't know what I am, but like one of the things I, and I am not a Trumpite by any means, but like one of the things that's been most startling for me for all of this, and this is a, a departure from the COVID conversation, is the is like, is that as a huge advocate, huge advocate of immigrant rights and immigrants being allowed to come into the country, that like actually there's not a ton of reasonable difference between the policies that Trump has like put forth, and I know I'm going to get tons of hate for this, and like those of Obama or others, and like. If you actually talk to anyone who's in the ground, like working on immigrant rights, like they will tell you that like there has been a lot of hoopla and politicization of various immigrant immigration moments. Um, but people generally um, that there is a lot of hypocrisy within like progressive communities that are pro-local and then also anti or like pro-local and also pro-immigration and not tying together that people are coming from other places that need your, like could use your dollars and could like use your support rather than having them come here. Anyways, that was just kind of something that has been, that has struck me as one of the biggest, like heart, like one of the biggest moments of like, that I'm sympathetic to libertarian causes about. So uh, Kevin R, the floor is yours. Yes, yeah, sir. I'm, I I haven't been experiencing this lot <clears throat> the lockdown stuff as being that dramatic of a change. And part of it, I think, is what uh, you guys had already uh, come to, that there's it's very situation dependent how much somebody is affected. So I mean, i'm I'm in Chicago. We've been, you know, under state lockdown orders since whatever since basically the same date as everyone in in mid-March. And we're probably probably looking at June at, before things end. Schools are down for the year, which is mid-June. But you know, in terms of my life, I'm deep in the city. I you know I don't have a car. I walk I walk everywhere. I can you know, I can walk that mile and a half to work if I to the office if I need to. I haven't. Uh, but you know the restaurants are still open. Yeah, I can't sit there and drink soda for a couple hours but i can get all the same food i'm getting the grocery stores are open 
things like that. The, the you know the biggest nuisance that I'm that I'm experiencing is that yeah my my daughter isn't at her special needs school anymore. I'm having to provide that support. But and where are you? I'm in Chicago. Where in Chicago? Uh, Gold Coast, just outside the loop there. So uh, I'm from Chicago. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I mean it's. So is, is your point here that um, it's um, not that big a deal and well, we should just suck it up? Or, well, is I, it, I, or is your point something else? Well, I think that it was getting towards this situational, the situational things that you had been noting as well, that it's that some people are much more affected by it than others. And it's socioeconomic, but it's also geographic and it isn't a clean cut line like you know i'm 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 deep in an urban area you would think that's probably more affected or you might think that you know based on the new york example there's good justification for more restrictions but they're not it's not hitting us too badly on the other hand my parents who are in uh, sioux falls south dakota they are dealing with a big outbreak there because of things that didn't shut down and, and so it's, it's, it needs to be, it seems to me at least that there's still justification for a lot of constraints, but that they do need to be tailored. And we're probably getting to the point where with, you know, with more data on where the disease is, what the status of the spread is, that yeah, there's probably room to start shifting these rules a bit easing things a little in some places but there may be places where it needs to be more more strict as well so it's a very thoughtful point and i can't decide instinctively whether it supports randy's view or or is intention with it um randy why don't you give your thoughts on it yeah I'd then... say, i didn't i think that's what i've been arguing for is uh, uh more it, it, we, we don't face an ex, a, a, hum, a, a worldwide existential humanity issue here, even though some people talk like we do. We're facing a virus that spreads. It has some effects. It, it has more effects on some parts of the population, including my part of the population, which is, you know, I'm 68 years old. Um, uh, my mom's 91. My father-in-law with us is 97. So it, it affects us. We are going to self-quarantine for longer than other people would, even if we didn't have to, uh, because I think I'm in that risk group. So yeah, I just think that we, we are, we're, and it's just a situation where it's gonna face different places differentially and we have to be sensitive to that. And I, I, I do think that if, there's a, one other thing about the lockdown and I, I can't, and I realize this, this is something that is part of the standard debate on Twitter, but I've got to point this out. We were sold on the stay at home orders on the grounds that we have to um, uh, we have to flatten the curve, and the rationale for flattening the curve was that an exponential growth of the disease was going to overwhelm the ability of the medical medical system to handle the excess the, the excess numbers of infections and stuff. And so you've got to flatten the curve. Well, flatten the curve didn't mean lower the incidence of the disease. It meant spreading it out so that you never your peak didn't exceed your capacity. That made perfect sense. The goalpost has been shifted now. When you make arguments, the arguments are not about flattening the curve and, uh, and about uh, uh, make sh making sure that the healthcare system is capable of doing it. It's about eliminating people getting sick. Well, you're not gonna eliminate people getting sick. You're delaying people getting sick. So if eventually people are gonna get sick, You've got to figure out how are you going to mitigate that? How are you going to live under these other circumstances? And that can't be under the lockdown, which was sold on the basis of flattening the curve, which it may or may not have done. I think there's a good, there's good reason to think it did actually have that effect. There's reasons to think maybe it wasn't necessary to have that effect. I don't care what the answer to that is. All I know is how it was sold and why the golf goalpost with respect to the lockdown has changed. Yeah, I actually totally agree with that. I think that one of the interesting conundrums or like kind of paradoxes of the lockdown is that people are not at factories making ventilators and masks and like various types of like so like gear that would put us in a position to be able to handle the number of people getting sick 
um, increasing. Um, and so there's that kind of controversy, but like the idea that the flattening of the curve, I think the fundamental misdirection of like, we want no one to get this disease versus, uh, we want to be able, everyone's going to get this disease and we want to be able to treat everyone humanely and with care and under like, uh, like the best of circumstances. Um, it was, was, was a pretty huge, it was a pretty huge gap. Like, yeah, frankly. but I don't think that was the position. I think the position was well, it was um, the position like I like on reason it was the position the, the second thing that I said like right, when I would read I, reason like that was what they were saying and like okay, people but, were following Wuhan were like that was what was going on right but but I always understood the argument for flattening the curve to be number one you want to prevent the the curve from spiking too high in a fashion that yeah, that's what North, I'm saying. In a Northern Italy-like fashion overwhelms your ability to care. Number two, the more you spread it out, um, the more time you buy for uh, uh, treatments to develop and hopefully vaccines to develop. Um, and so ultimately the fewer people get the disease at all. And number three, um, and perhaps most fancifully, but um, that you can actually insulate a certain percentage of the population from getting the disease at all. And I, I am not sure I've seen any data that disabuses me of any of those three ideas. The, the fact that the spike was as dramatic as it was suggests to me that absent social distancing, it would have been really catastrophic. And, you know, when I hear uh, Kevin R's account of Sioux Falls, where, you know, I look at it and say, if I'd been the mayor of Sioux Falls early on, I probably would have said with Randy, hey, you know, there's, uh, our conditions here are pretty different from the conditions in Wuhan or New York or Seattle. And, uh, and then all of a sudden a spike catches up with you because there's this two week lag and actually you have a lot of people infected. You just don't know it until all of a sudden a whole lot of them start showing up in emergency rooms. And so I, I can't decide whether what Kevin is saying is a, like a really good argument for regionalism as Randy's arguing, or a really good argument that all regionalism is optical. And I add, if, can I add on if, to that question really if, quick? Sorry, that go ahead. If, if, the, if there's a population density above a certain level, and I grant, it, I grant you it's different in rural central Virginia, it's different in Western Montana, where you can say the natural state of life involves a certain level of social distancing that, is, that actually creates a different R naught, right? But apart from those, with a certain population density in any given region, you are going to have an outbreak that is going to be very ugly unless certain steps are taken. And if you don't see that coming, it's just because you're kidding yourself. So I'm curious for your response to that. I, I throw that out not as a hard hypothesis, but as a as some reflections in light of what Kevin said and what you said in response. Kate, did you say you wanted to get into this too? Oh yeah, I was just going to add that I thought that there was a really great question there about not just regionalism, but like if we're talking about regionalism, maybe we talk about different forms as being more relevant to regionalism than others. So like maybe property-based conceptions of liberty are the things to think about in certain types of areas and more tort-based conceptions of liberty are the things to think about in others. Like that seems like that might be a solution to this problem, um, but maybe that's maybe, I mean, or maybe I'm being redundant of something that's already been written, but that's just what, like kind of what I was thinking. All right, I'd, I'd like to hear more about that. Well, I just thought of it right now. So I'll let you know <laughs> when I think about it. <laughs> Um, look, I, I don't have an answer to this. I, I was kind of hoping that this whole podcast wouldn't turn into a 60-minute discussion of COVID um, uh, because I'm not an expert on COVID. I get my information from the same places you guys get it from. 
I don't uh, think this has been an I don't think this has been a conversation about COVID though, Randy. Like this is a conversation about liber- liberty. Like and like and yeah, like understanding government under, in the I context th- of I still think the context this is liberty COVID. under unusual circumstances. If you actually what's the basic fundamental problem that people are perceiving, whether it's true or not or not, is whether they they're perceiving the the mere presence of other people close to them and interacting with them to be a threat to their life. That's not our normal situation. None of our ro- normal rules of property and contract and torts were developed under a factual predicate that standing close to somebody uh, and breathing on them is going to threaten their life or cutting their hair or manic- giving them a manicure um, is going to threaten their life. If you start changing the basic facts of human existence, then the basic rules that are necessary to follow in order for people to flourish under those new set of facts are going to differ than what they were under the old set of facts. I don't think we are looking at a permanent new set of facts. Two things happen. One is if you're in a temporary new set of facts, you deal with the temporary new set of facts, but you don't extrapolate from that to the idea that, oh, from now on, all those old rules are out the window and we've got to live a different way. I don't think we're there. Um, and so that's the reason why, um, and I ask what kind of social changes you think have led to those moments? Because I'm thinking of two in my, in my head right now, constitutionally, like women getting the right to vote and then also Brown. And so like, and the civil rights act. Um, and I know that those are kind of coming from top down places, but not, but like, I would say that they were reflecting social norms that were changing at the time. Um, but like, I, I think that those dramatically changed how we thought certain people like thought of liberties forever, like, and like how they thought of like their ability to like exercise those liberties. Um, I'm not thinking of those as different because I don't think that the nature of women uh, changed. And I don't think the nature of African-Americans changed such that they deserve to be treated differently at time, you know, Y than they were being treated at time A. I think they should have always been treated that way because the facts of the matter had not changed. Um, And so uh, I'm not talking about a different social fact, which is how they're perceived. I'm talking about the actual underlying fact. And since, so that's why I don't see those examples as being what we're talking about. That's fair. I just was, I think that I was talking about two different social facts, but Randy, thank you so much for this. This is like, as a, I never got to take one of your classes. Um, This is what what they're all like, just like this. Yeah, this is good because I'm having an angina. So I probably wouldn't have survived law school (laughs) if I had kept doing this for like an entire year or semester. Um, But um, this was just like really lovely to have you join us. And I'm glad that you are safe with your family and everyone is doing okay. And I'm sorry that it was an entire COVID conversation, but I still think it was incredibly rich. And I think that it's like there are things that we discussed that are more forward-looking for a lot of larger legal principles going forward, hopefully, I think. That's great. Thank you, Randy. I just want to say, go Bears. It's the draft this week, and uh, presumably there'll be an NFL They're still doing the draft? They're doing the draft by means of This is the most exciting thing that's happened to ESPN since the Red Sox won in 2005. (laughs) So go Bears. You know, we don't have very many many good draft picks this year for a variety of reasons, but uh, your one is always hopeful. And uh, we'll I'll, and we'll I'll, I'll be I'll be watching. Great, excellent. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye. All right, Kate. What do we have tomorrow? Do we have any idea? No, this has been a week. <laughs> like, yeah, I we have no that... idea what's coming tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I hope we'll have a better day than Boris Johnson. What happened to Boris Johnson again today? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he's got COVID-19. And I'm got, really so. happy. Any day that I'm not Boris Johnson is a good day. So they're like, <laughs> please don't like do some type of like, what is it? Tricky Tuesday or flipping Friday or whatever it is that like turns me into Boris Johnson. <laughs> exactly. Um, All right. Well, um, what are, so what's our sign off now, Kate? Our, well, our sign off was soft politics and hard liquor. Uh, but today I was 
I, I thought of something while I was coming home from the emergency room, but I can't remember. It was like, please don't let your children bite me. It was like, no, this, don't, I don't go know. like this with a don't, knife. Don't go with it. Oh yes. That's what, it, oh yes. Oh, I'm so glad it was, uh, it was don't bring a knife to a fist fight. Pugilism yeah. week, pugilism week. Even in pugilism <laughs> week, don't bring a knife to a fight, a fist fight. With That's a riff feet. on my favorite Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Bringing a knife to a gunfight. Bringing a knife to a gunfight. Don't yeah. bring a knife to a gunfight. Oh God, it's yeah. so funny. It's so good. Well, All right, go it, it's, go it's watch that of, movie now if you've never seen it. That, Jesus it's Christ! It's the kind of thing that in the old days we would have said was fun, but we don't have fun anymore. But remember, if you can't have fun, you can join us tomorrow for the uh, fifth day of pugilism week. We'll have a good fight for you. Um, and- uh, We're gonna have a good solid liberal on, I think. Yeah, we, we need to have like a left-wing radical. I think I've got it. I think I've got it. I can't right. commit them, but I think and I've I, got and it. And I can, you know, retreat to my historic conservative- Do you, do you know some liberals, Ben? Oh, okay. I, <laughs> no, Maybe I'm, a few. I've always been like, the right flank in liberal institutions, right? I was like the dinosaur on the Washington Post editorial page. And then I was, you know, like uh, eccentric uh, at Brookings, you know, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm like the in liberal circles. I'm like the crazy ball of like politics, which is just <laughs> kind of like, I make my decisions exactly as they come. I, there were moments today when Randy was talking that I was like, I say that that's why I think about things. Is that why people think that I'm a libertarian? <laughs> like there was like these moments, but like, I don't know, just truly independent is the, is the thing. So anyways, this go. was a great, Great show. It's good fun. Thanks to Randy for joining us, and we will see you tomorrow. Don't bring a knife to a fist fight, Ben. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight either. Yeah. Bye. Ciao.